Hello, and welcome to UK Life Abroad. My name is Andre, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Yusten, Alexa, and Nathan. With a long, complex, and controversial history, Ukrainians have long fought for the preservation of their nation. This week, we take a look at Ukraine and the impacts that over 1,000 years of geopolitics has had on it and its people. This and more on Zakhartonyu Ukrainsi, the podcast for all things Ukrainian. So in this week's episode, we're going to do a bit of a deep dive into the history of Ukraine, not just the history of the nation as we know it today, but the history of the Ukrainian people and the various nations that existed in that area, particularly looking at uh, the post-colonial aspects of um, Ukraine and how the various occupations over this time have you know, shifted Ukrainian politics and geopolitics um, over the years. So a very heavy topic. I hope you enjoy. It sounds like Nathan um, is going to give us a lot of semantics about the difference between post-colonial and post-imperial. So stay tuned for a bit more information about how these two seemingly shared terms are actually quite different. Oh, yes. I think we should also say that, like, when people think of post-colonialism, Ukraine isn't a country that jumps to mind. But I think once once we're done, hopefully, we'll, we'll be able to show you that Ukraine is actually quite a good case example for post-colonial, a post-colonial society. Well, when you think of post-colonial, what do you think of? Some African country, usually, because when you're at school, that's all they ever teach you about, is that colonialism didn't happen in Europe. It happened in like Africa, South or, America, Asia. Yeah. Or like newly created countries like the Americas and uh, Australia. Canada, all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, as you mentioned, let me get into the, the fun, the fun parts here. So when we're talking about colonization, uh, colonization, it refers to this process of domination or occupation where settlers migrate from the colonizing group or like the the home country to the colonized land. So, for example, um, the British sending uh, settlers over the ocean into America, whereas imperialism is a form that it doesn't require any new settlement. So, it normally incorporates that new land into the, the main country. So, that would be countries like uh, Russia, for example, which took over other um, areas and then claimed it for its own. So, yeah, they're the main two things we're looking at here. So, does that mean that, like, really, imp- post imp- like an imperial, like a supposed imperial country is a country that neighbors or is adjacent to generally. the said land? Yeah, yeah generally. Um, and so, what would you guys say? Would you say Ukraine is a post colonial country or a post imperial country? I'd lean towards post colonial just because Russia never stopped sending settlers into ukraine and like i think it's most evident in eastern ukraine where like after holodomor they repopulated the whole territory with people from russia and like the other soviet republics and same with krem as well where after they deported it uh, all the crimean tatars from crimea they uh sent a bunch of russians over as well so it wasn't just donbass or eastern ukraine it was also krem and further west and arguably to but today for, for I guess for Russia, the idea of painting Ukraine as a post-imperial country is probably more advantageous because it suggests that those populations have always existed of Russian speaking or native Russians living in Ukraine rather than the resettlement that's happened over many different periods of history. Yeah, and that goes to like the famous myth that um, the wild Ukrainian steppe was settled by 
you know, the hardy Russian settler, when in, you know, reality there were Ukrainian towns there since, like, you know, ancient times. It's just they were, it was less densely populated compared to, like, Halachanar and, like, areas around Kiev and Chernihiv. Well, i got a fun fact for you guys. This is actually called internal colonization. So it's uh, a cultural specific domination within the national borders. So it's when they're trying to change, you know, cultures and groups like that within their own borders to kind of unite everyone under was it one. sort of like the uk um like in the 1800s sort of in a sense like with scotland and wales and yeah, ireland kind of like that where they're trying to basically break down any other minority cultures that might exist in their own um kingdom or like empire kingdom, empire yeah whatever i guess what what's interesting i think for those at home who are listening and all, all of us nathan is what's why does it matter what's the difference and what implication does it make in terms of historical, I guess, theory or even just general in the historical community? Well, the main thing is, and this is where it kind of goes back to the argument, why do, um, what makes Ukrainian different to Russian? And so, over the years, because of all of this uh, dissemination of uh, false information and because of these efforts in colonization and internal colonization and the efforts to change or to kind of merge Russian and Ukrainian, it's gotten to the point now where, like, you know, Russians have um, claimed that, you know, Ukrainians are just little Russians and stuff like that. It's gotten to the point where the Ukrainian identity is suffering because internationally people believe that they're so similar. Why aren't they united under the same? Uh, country and that's why we as Ukrainians need to push against that and we actually really need to promote the differences in our culture and kind of undo all these years of um, cultural domination and misrepresentation all that appropriation and force the fact that we are a different you know ethnic group and I think you're absolutely right because I remember even when researching for this episode like I found lots of journal articles that spoke about how even in like the cold war no one really questioned Russia as a colonial power just because of like Soviet propaganda saying that Russia was never a colonizing country because they never went to Africa and set up external colonies. They stuck to their like native territory. And so you'd have a lot of um, scholars that would just avoid the topic completely. And it's only kind of in the last like 20 years, I would say, that like there's been some scholarly research into colonialism in Eastern Europe. Yeah, and I think anything that was done during the Cold War from a Soviet Union perspective was kind of always brushed off as being more about the spread of communism rather than true colonial, like the traditional form of colonialism, like if it was supporting Cuba or supporting North Korea or doing anything in that sort of sense, it was always in support rather than really being a true, I guess, you know, colonial power spreading out, but yeah. And looking, mentioning what you said about like scholars, I found this guy, his name's Andreas Kappeler, and he's an Austrian scholar. He works for the Journal of Eurasian Studies. And he wrote a piece uh, called Ukraine and Russia, Legacies of the Imperial Past and Competing Mem- Memories. And in it, he writes one in one part, he says, the relationship between the two independent states were from the very beginning difficult. Almost all issues have their root in the imperial past. And he goes on to talk about Russia's view of Ukraina, and this kind of gets to his main point where he mentions that there's a lack of state traditions that have led many, including in Ukraine, to view Ukrainians as a Russian minority. And what he's talking about there is that because Russia's 
um, central government did exist, even though it was across, like you had Muscovy and then the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union, even though it did exist, there's sort of that consistency there. But because Ukraine has constantly needed to strive and because the shape of the nation has changed and the borders have changed so much, that uh, lack of consistency in that state tradition is actually contributing to a lot of Ukrainians feeling like they don't have a national identity. And I think you bring up like a valid point. Like a lot of Ukraine's borders are quite artificial in a sense because they were drawn after World War II. And if you look at like the map of the Ukrainian People's Republic and the territory it claimed, it was a much larger area and it encompassed a lot more like ethnically Ukrainian. So it kind of scooped into like the Kubain region of Russia and then it went up a bit more into Belarus and all that. And you had a more natural kind of flowing border instead of some of the jagged lines that represents Ukraine's border where it goes through a field. But arguably, I mean, Europe is yeah. riddled with that kind of change of border and, and, and rewriting of borders. I think just before the border conversation, I think the other thing that's probably um, evidence of, I guess, that kind of uh, success in terms of painting Ukraine's identity as not being as rich or as not as, you know, as long-standing as perhaps the Russian identity is this myth that Russia has somehow appropriated Kiev and Rus as its history um, rather than the history of, yeah, that region specifically and arguably for those who who believe it like I do that really the history of Ukraine is, is tied to Kiev and Rus. And the classic example for someone who sort of questions that is in the situation like um, we talk about the Roman Empire – Everyone can, everyone obviously agrees that the, the start or I guess the birth of the Roman Empire or at least the dominant place of culture was Rome. Now, Rome is part of Italy. It's really like saying a country like Poland, who is obviously very, you know, Germania, which was obviously occupied by, by Rome, the Roman Empire saying we are the historic, we are the continuing historical government or a culture from Rome, you know, and obviously no one can test Rome being in Italy now. And they, they obviously own that, that history and that, um, the traditions that come from that particular empire and that particular birth of civilization. Um, and I don't think there's many examples really of, um, that kind of huge detachment from a modern day country to when the, when the birthplace of that particular, you know, cultural area is within that country that's residing. Yeah. Like even London, London was founded by the Romans and there's no one in, you know, the UK saying that they are true descendants of like Rome. Rome, yeah. Well, there's also Sarmatian warriors from Ukraine in much of that part of the West of the Roman Empire at that time too. The more you know, Nathan. <laughs> so, yeah, you're exactly right, Justin, because there's um, a quote here I found from Putin with regards to Kiev and Rus, and he said, "Ukraine, without a doubt, is an independent state." That is how history has unfolded. But let's not forget that today's Russian statehoods has deep roots in the Dnipro. As we say, we have a common Dnipro baptistry. Kiev and Rus started out as the foundation of the enormous future Russian state. We have common traditions, a common mentality, a common history, and a common culture. We have very similar languages. In that respect, I want to repeat again, we are one people. And so that's kind of the idea that he's trying to push, that... Russia is a direct descendant from Kiev and Rus, and it goes on with that tradition of Russia's statehood has been has existed for this many thousands of years, which is just untrue, because there have been many different forms of governments, you know, in that area since Kiev and Rus. So to 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 directly tie the Russia today to Kiev and Rus is just 
factually one wrong. One thing I do want to point out, though, is that um, Putin and uh, other Russian officials, they always bring up the point of the name of Ukraine and Kievskodos and Russia. They always say that, oh, Ukraine can never be like a descendant or like a successor successor of Kesko Rus because the name doesn't follow uh, doesn't follow because you have Rus Russia it's close enough right what about the Kievska part yeah yeah and like what um, they just completely ignore the fact that countries names change over history it's like for example you have the Roman Empire turning into Italy nowadays you have um, well broken into several states and then unified yeah, Italy yeah. you have the Ottoman Empire turning into Turkey, you have Persia turning to Iran. So you have countries change their names constantly and it's they don't stay um, that name forever. And even Russia, they weren't even called Russia before. They were called Moscovy. So, uh, yeah. yeah. And look, I think the other part is that often I think the, the layman's approach to all this is, well, Rus sounds like Russian, therefore maybe they're right. Maybe they do have a claim. But then the other side of the coin is that there are Rusen there, which is a very different thing to Russians. Well, yeah, and it's the ancient. Um, and, you know, that's, that's interpreted as being, they, they see themselves as descendants of that in, in terms of that identity, which obviously acknowledges that in Ukraine there were, were a lot of smaller identities of people, which still exist today. If you talk about the Lemkos, the Hutsuls, if you talk about Rusen there. Um, and even if you look at our, even our churches, there's actually representation in both the Orthodox and Ukrainian Catholic faiths of each of those churches as well, because there are those disparate groups. But ultimately, I think national, like becoming a, I think the difference, one of the key differences I see though is my question to Putin on his comment, what you made, what you quoted, Nathan, is so why is the Ukrainian trident, which is a symbol from the times of Kiskurus, not in in any way shown as part of either Imperial Russian you know, heraldry or part of the Soviet heraldry or part of the modern Russian heraldry. And then, yeah, and, and it's always been used traditionally as a symbol uh, adopted by Ukrainians, you know, to represent Ukraine as a separate nation from Russia. And I love the um, mental gymnastics that you kind of, that you have to do when they in Russian history because it goes from Kiev and then it magically kind of jumps to Moscow instead of the more natural progression of. The, con- the capital of the country moving westwards to escape from the Mongol hordes that were coming in. Usually you don't run toward, you don't move your capital closer towards your enemy. Yeah. Try to move it far away, which is why you have the more natural succession of um, Rus moving to Lviv and then eventually that turns into Kozakir and all that instead of, you know, it moving to this tributary state of Muscovy which was, you know, more dominated by the Mongols. Oh, look, I, sh- I should point out as well, like, I, obviously, the way we use the Trezum today is more something that's happened in the 20th century um, as the representation of Ukraine, as a modern Ukraine. But I think it still stands that that history and that the choice to do that in terms of a, piece, a group of peoples seems to respect that heraldry and that tradition a lot more than the appropriation done for convenience of making, you know, Russia feel like it's a more longer-lasting empire. Yeah, and it was like yeah. the those coins that they found in Zap- in Kiev, rec- oh no, Chernihiv recently. That whole hoard, and it had like almost a perfect 
Repli- replication of a Teresa. Yeah, well, I think like Stretch of the Brave, like which was I think before one thousand nine four five time was the more elemental style. Yeah, but as it got towards Volod the Murder the Great and Yaroslav, you know, Mudrahol, Yaroslav the Wise, it definitely you know built into a Teresa that was very recognizable. So other countries have already claimed uh, Kevskodos as their own history, not just Ukraina. So another aspect that they've also claimed is the baptism of Kiev in 988 by Volodymyr the Great. And so in terms of Ukraine and Russia, yeah, it gives Russia another layer into claiming that Ukraine and Russia are one people, one religion, one language in a sense, and that we should actually be together rather than separate. And so from this um, historical conflict and religious conflict, a lot of Ukrainians today view uh, having our own Ukrainian Orthodox Church as a very important part of our history now, and it signifies our, our relationship distancing from Russia and uh, setting our own history and our own religious history away from Russia and stopping Russia having another uh, another hook that it can grab onto, really. Yeah, and I think it's um, quite interesting in how Russia has been able to, or at least tries to appropriate different aspects of Ukrainian culture. Like we can see that from mundane things like borscht to, you know, national costume and dance. Because, they, you know, they like to claim that Hopak is a Russian dance. Because you see like those, you even saw it in the Red Army, where like Red Army soldiers would do Cossack steps as part of their repertoire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the whole um, Soviet time frame when just... They were trying to create this whole Soviet uh, citizen, but it was rather a Russian citizen. And so they'd take bits and pieces from other culture and claim it to be Russian. And they still do it even to this day, claiming that borscht is Russian and uh, Cossack dancing is also a Russian, a part of Russian history, really. Yeah, Andre. And I, I think, look, I think the history uh, of, I guess, the Soviet Union over three quarters of, almost three quarters of the 20th century, um, or perhaps just over, is that there was kind of always a, a strange balancing act or a strange push, pull and tug when it came to how the Soviet Union decided to create that identity. I mean, there was, I mean, on paper, the idea was that there are many cultures coming together for one Soviet ideal and one Soviet vision and one Soviet, um, you know, I guess, lifestyle. And because of that, there were times over that period where Ukrainian was accepted as a language, where it wasn't imposed to be Russified as much as it was previously. And that's led to some very practical things like the fact that the metro in Ukraine, you know, had Ukrainian language, you know, quite prevalently even before independence um, during a period like that. And But it is, it is a... Um, it is an interesting thing now that uh, there's no denying that although it was paper on paper presented as this sort of, I guess, you know, union of nations, a bit like the EU might be considered today, there was definitely a um, level of um, trying to impose or, I guess, appropriate, like you've suggested, a lot of those cultures into being one common Soviet but underlined Russia, Russian culture. And unfortunately, in post uh, post the Soviet Union, that has continued, like you've mentioned, um, to just continue to happen as 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 time's gone on. So it is a strange, but you know, um, it's a strange reality that you know a lot of these things that are that might be considered, you know, very much Ukrainian, and even talking about people, uh, very very famous people from the Soviet Union, 
being born in Ukraine and identify as being Ukrainian, it's it's a hard thing to separate at this point. And, and there is some effort being made by the Ukrainian government today to try and acknowledge um, the great achievements of people in Ukrainians born in Ukraine and also, you know, parts of the uh, the Soviet infrastructure that were built in Ukraine, like the Antonov planes that are now is a Ukrainian company, and a lot of the um, a lot of the other heavy industrial work that was done in Kharkiv, whether that's with tanks or even things like the uh, the cross Antarctic explorers that were built out of that area. Um, so there's a lot of innovation and things that have happened in Ukraine. Obviously, it's 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 hard now to separate that, which obviously is always going to be a challenge as Ukraine moves forward. So would you guys say Ukraine now is going through its post-colonial movement? I'd say there was always it came in waves. So you had like the like you had the first Lenin fall in the nineties, where like in Western Ukraine they tore down a lot of the Lenin statues quite quickly, and then like in the mid two thousands it kind of moved more into Central Ukraine, and then after Maidan it kind of happened everywhere because it was like you know a symbol of breaking away from Russia, um, and you know only recently the last Lenin on public land fell. In Ukraine, was that so, last week? Yeah, we po- yeah we t- posted about it on social media. That's right. Um, which I, you know, it's kind of, in some ways, it's scary that it took almost thirty years for that to happen. But I think, in other sense, it's actually quite quick in how they've gotten rid of more than five thousand monuments. Yeah, and look, that wasn't the only thing that took forever. I mean, I, I recall even being in Ukraine as recently as probably probably about more than 10 years ago. It's probably changed now since I've been there more recently. But you would go to Vahovnarada and, of course, there'd be a nice big trezor at the front on the Vahovnarada and you walked around the back to the gates for the service entries and they'd still have a hammer and sickle on it. So I think there's a lot of those sort of, you know... I'm pretty sure the flagpole on top of the Rada up until a couple of years ago still had a red, still had a star in it. Yeah. It's only now that they've changed it to a trezor. Yeah. And I think, look, I think part of... Maybe perhaps part of that that is is the the way that the Soviet Union collapsed, where people didn't really need to sit on either side of a fence; they could just sit on the fence. And um, I think there was probably not as much symbolism type for the people involved. The symbolism between all of it probably wasn't for, for most people wasn't as important as, as as it has become. Obviously, in the new light of being in a current war and and all, all the other you know, and and the passage of time. And, like, we can even see that now of Zelensky, you know, reintroducing the idea of the great coat of arms of Ukraine to uh, create another state symbol for the country. But even the language laws, like the now they're doing schooling in Ukrainian, those are good measures. Yeah, and I think the fact that now there'll be generation, like, the next generation of children will grow up with their entire schooling in Ukrainian instead of, you know, partially. Only half the subjects are in Ukrainian. I think will make a big difference in how people identify. And even with the recently uh, amended language laws that we talked about, I think uh, two, two episodes weeks. ago or so, when we mentioned um, the public service being now compulsory to speak in Ukrainian first, I think that's another great step to de-Russification in Ukraine and promoting the Ukrainian language. Yeah, no. I, look, I think I think the danger, though, is I, mean, I think all these laws, as we discussed before, these laws are all very positive. Um, but there is still, I think, uh, a very entrenched and, and, and intentionally entrenched mentality in Ukraine, not just Ukraine, but a lot of the post-Soviet states, that Russia is the language of commerce, that Russia is the language of, you know, science, it's the language of engineering. Education, it's, you know, it's, tertiary it's a, education. Of, of, you know, of... I guess the intelligentsia of a country 
of the country would speak that language. And I think one of the challenges with breaking that is that Russia has has continued to present itself and try and reju- rejuvenate itself as a center of creativity and science and engineering and trying to even engage in a capitalist world in that way. And, you know, perhaps if it wasn't for the war, there would be the same pull that countries like Belarus and others were feeling to continue to engage in that kind of union and from that kind of perspective because of, you know, the opportunities being there. And I think part of that, not to kind of go down on a different tangent, but the other part that's that's a bit of a concern there is that if if Ukraine doesn't get um, more access into NATO and more trust into the European Union, um, I think that's also a that's going to be a challenge for Ukrainian as well because of that again, you know, being being the I guess the regional language or the regional way to connect. If they're pushed more towards that side of things again, it makes it difficult to you know I guess progress their, that independence. Yeah, and I think that can be seen by like the government promoting the knowledge of English now as being, you know, they did the year of English a couple of years ago and they offered free classes for anyone who wanted to learn English. So I think that was always a step in the right direction. But then, like, you you have moments. Like, I remember when I studied in, in Mohalyanka in Kiev a couple of years ago, like, there were some kids that were excited that they'd finally published, like, a university textbook for engineering in Ukrainian. And I was a bit shocked coming, like, really? It's been, like, more than 25 years and you're only now publishing a book in Ukrainian, so like better late than never. And yet, Russian is considered a minor language under the constitution since '96. Yeah, it's but, like, but that's really just on paper. In practice, it's it still was obviously very widespread. I had one. Yeah, I had one thing. There was a country. I tried to look it up. I can't remember which country it was. Uh, it was a South American country. It had a pretty progressive approach. They actually appointed, I believe, it was a minister or a secretary of post-colonialism, and. It was basically their role was to decolonialize the country and um, kind of, you know, develop their own uh, national identity away from whichever country it was that colonized them, most likely the Spanish. Um, it's the country that has the native, he's the first Amerindian yeah. president. Yeah. Um, is it Bolivia? I think it is. Okay. I couldn't remember, but I, I couldn't think it's find Bolivia. the article. I think, though, as well, sort of going back to your your, your thoughts around um, the post-colonial side of things, and I think language is important, but it's not the only um, the only excuse for why it can be challenging for a country to define its own independent cultural identity. We look at somewhere like Brazil. There's Portuguese, obviously, in Brazil, but it's it's a slightly different. Okay, there might be some slightly different words, but it is Portuguese language. It's called Portuguese. Mm-hmm. Yet Brazil is not. Portugal, and no one would interrupt those two countries. Aside from their geographic distance, perhaps is another reason, but they have they do have a separate cultural identity. Um, and I think sometimes the other challenge that we have to think about when we talk about post-colonial Ukraine, we're talking about post-colonial in the context of the Soviet Union experience. But Ukraine, unfortunately, has been subject over time to a whole host of, or at least, at least different parts of Ukraine have been subjugated by either the Russian Empire previously from a from a I guess a royalty side. Um, the Imperial Russian Empire, and also from um, its other borders, you know, whether it be Austria-Hungary, etc. So I think as part of, I guess, although it is a, definitely a post-colonial mentality, I think the hard thing for Ukraine is that we're not talking about unpacking just one post-colonial and shackling that off. It's actually understanding that all these periods there was, you know, a unique common thread that kept all of this live. And, I mean, the converse way to look at it is that, 
under those sort of circumstances where the country hasn't been an independent country for very long over the last, say, 400 years. Well, as at we least, know it, yeah. But- as we know it for 400 years, that that culture has retained itself, that people still spoke Ukrainian, that people still, you know, fought for independence and declared independence three times in one century, um, ultimately succeeding. Um, that's got to show that, you know, that, that there is some kind of historical lineage, there is some kind of, you know, thread that does tie back to maybe older times in Cuban rules. In the news this week, US Congressman Gerald Connolly and Steve Shabbat have introduced the Bipartisan Crimean Annexation Non-Recognition Act into the US House of Representatives. The act will further enhance US non-recognition of the annexation of Crimea and build on previously enacted sanctions. We encourage all our US listeners to contact their representatives to express their support. The Ukrainian town of Novhorodsky in Donbass has moved one step closer to reclaiming its historical name of New York after the Vrkhovna Rada's local governance committee endorsed the decision. The town was originally founded in 1892 by German settlers who were looking to create a new religious community. Ukraine's Prime Minister Denis Shmuhal has travelled to Brussels to seek a comprehensive review of the association agreement with the EU. The deal is seen as a major tool to further Ukraine's integration into the EU and its institutions. Poland, Sweden and Germany have expelled three Russian diplomats in response to Russia's expulsion of their embassy staff. Russia had earlier expelled several European diplomats due to their participation in the ongoing protests against the imprisonment of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Let us know which stories you'd like to hear by reaching out to us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Join us next week for more UK Life Abroad content.